Hey, good morning to you. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Uh, if you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you, a black one. And go ahead and find your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter that is the close of uh, the first major section of this book. We've been in 2 Corinthians for a while, and we've been looking at Paul talking to this church uh, who is struggling to follow either Paul or the false teachers that are among them. Uh, when we as elders think about and consider what God is doing in our church, we are looking for character growth. We aren't necessarily looking at the bottom line budget, though that tells you a little bit about what is happening in a church. We aren't necessarily looking at numbers, uh, while that can tell you a little bit about how a church is doing. Uh, what we're looking for and really praying for is for God to get a hold of your heart. For there to be evidence in our midst of the spirit at work among us where people would move from being uh, selfish to selfless. People would move from considering their own desires to what Paul tells the Philippian church to consider others as more important than themselves. We're looking for our church to grow perhaps from selfishness to selflessness with their finances. We're looking for us to have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentle, you know them, right? Gentleness, self-control. We're looking in the midst of our church, not so much at church growth, but at church health. So as we have those conversations as elders, we share some of the burden, I believe, that Paul has for the Corinthian church. And what Paul is going to share with us today is perhaps one of the greatest indicators of vitality in your spiritual life. It's probably one of the greatest indicators of where your relationship with God is right now. What Paul's going to lay out in front of the Corinthians is a sign of sure and certain intimacy with God. It's a sign that you have a relationship with God that is real on the inside. Not just externals, not just morality, but intimacy with God. That's what this passage is about. This passage is the most explicit passage, I think, in the New Testament on what real, true repentance looks like. When Jesus begins his ministry, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John the Baptist, who uh, precedes Jesus, begins his ministry, he begins baptizing people with a baptism of what? Repentance. So what we're going to see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is something that is so vital to the Corinthian church's spiritual life. And it's so vital to our life together as a group of people who, who proclaim the goodness of God as we sing, who proclaim the goodness of God in our lives who choose now to live lives of uprightness and moral courage and spiritual uh, fidelity and steadfastness in the variety of contexts in which we live. And all of those expressions are ultimately going to come back to what is happening when you 
and when me experience confrontation by the word of God? Would you call yourself a good spiritual listener? When you read the word or the word is preached or you listen to somebody explain to you a passage, are the intuitive impulses in your heart, help me understand, God. Help me understand what is happening. And therefore, do you live in your relationship with God always seeking to change, to bring your life more in confirmation with what God says about life? Is that you? What do you think? Are there some topics in, all, in our culture, maybe topics with people you talk about at work where God has an opinion and where we need to align ourselves with the plumb line of what God thinks? You have you ever have that encounter with the word of God? Well, that's what this passage is about. So here's what I'm going to do. This passage is somewhat weird. Because Paul starts rejoicing and he ends rejoicing, but really the meat of the passage is what happens in the middle. So what I'm going to do is show you Paul's rejoicing at the beginning. And then I'm going to show you Titus's rejoicing at the end. And then what we're going to do is camp for the rest of the time right in the middle of the passage. You with me so far? You all right? So let's pray and ask God for his grace as we look at this passage here this morning. Father, for the few minutes that we look into your word, we pray that all of us from first graders all the way up to 90-year-olds would be eager for what you would have to say to us here this morning. That we would leave this place with a greater desire to live lives in accordance with your word. That you would give us the gift of repentance here this morning. So that where we are out of step, you would put us in step. Where we are out of joint in our spiritual lives, that you would align us and put us in joint where we have believed things that are attractive to us, we pray for the spirit of repentance to turn and lay hold of the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. For the variety of lives of men and women in this room, Father, I pray that you would speak to us at the deepest places of our heart and that we would respond the way you would have us. So we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start there in verse 2, and we'll make our way all the way through the end of this passage. You with me? All good? Verse 2, take a look. Make room in your hearts for us. Now, this is what Paul has already said in the early part of chapter 6. He says he's asked this church to widen their hearts to him as he has widened his heart to them. Paul, as an apostle, is profoundly vulnerable with this church. He so explicitly loves and cares for them that he's willing to invest and to fight for their spiritual fidelity, to fight for their spiritual lives. And he comes back again to something that we've seen all throughout the beginning of this book, which is his own character. Look at the remainder of the verse. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. If you'll remember how we started this this book is that Paul writes this letter while waiting for the report from Titus. Paul had a confrontation in this church where somebody, where he tried to call this church to account and he faced opposition. He probably had some kind of verbal altercation where somebody in the church stood up against him and said, we're not going to listen to you. We don't believe in what you say. And this person is trying to seek to drag the church away after their own particular version of teaching. So Paul, right from the beginning, says, we haven't wronged anyone. 
I haven't done you deliberate harm. Not only that, we've corrupted no one, which speaks to their spiritual lives. I'm not leading you into immorality. Number three, we haven't taken advantage of you, which speaks to the ethics of Paul, the missionary apostle of Jesus Christ, saying my ministry isn't based on getting money from the church. My ministry doesn't have as its central motivation, you better pay me. I'm trying to preach so that I would have influence among you so that my bank account numbers would rise. Paul says, I haven't taken advantage of you. Verse three, I don't say this to condemn you. I'm not laying a guilt trip on you because of my upright convictions about my ministry. For I said before that you are in our hearts. If you read chapter six and chapter seven, watch how many times Paul talks about his heart. Watch how many times he cares about this church. He pleads for them to return the affection that he has for them back to himself so that they would be in a mutual relationship of love and affection, that they'd care about him as he cares about them. I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. which means Paul has the utmost loyalty to this church. It's like Ruth telling Naomi, where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Our future together is bound up in my faithfulness to proclaim the gospel and the church's obedience to receive the gospel. Remember what we said in the beginning of this book. Paul says, uh, on the day of Christ Jesus, I will boast in you as you have boasted in me. This church will say, you are our apostle who is faithful to bring us the message. And Paul will say, these are my people because they received the gospel message. To live and die together. Our future, our destiny is tied up together. We're invested in one another. Now, if you know, if we, we've already talked about this, but imagine for Paul to go to this church, to pour out the gospel, to suffer the way he has, and to share this gospel message with the church and then to get confronted, and then to get rebuked, and then to recognize that I can't stand face to face with this church without compromising my witness, compromising my testimony. This church is believing the wrong things. They're following the wrong guy. I've got to retreat. How would you feel about that church? Wouldn't there be a little bit in you of, I'm not going back there. They can sit in the stew that they stewed. Whatever you do to stew. Stew in their own, that's what I was trying, stew in their own juices. Go ahead, follow after that guy. Wouldn't there be a little bit of arms folded? Let's see how it goes for you over there. And Paul cares so much about this church. He's so emotionally and spiritually invested in them that he says our lives are bound up. We're tied up together. Your destiny is my destiny. I care about you. He's not guarded. He's open. Look at verse four. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. Now, um, boldness, this is great because Paul begins, as he's done all throughout this, you can read, read it again if you want. Read through the beginning of this book and watch how invested Paul is. Boldness isn't necessarily Paul's desire for confrontation without love, is it? Paul just doesn't let it fly because he's a truth speaker. 
right? He cares. He's invested. If you've ever had to have confrontations, confrontation conversations with somebody, you know that what better to lead that conversation is your profound love and investment for the individual. Brother, sister, I love you. I am invested in you. I care about you. And at the same time, I am profoundly bold. The only thing that's worse than a conversation about confrontation, nobody likes confrontation, right? You aren't, you aren't excited for that conversation that you're putting off that you know you need to have, right? But the only thing that gives you boldness in that kind of conversation is profound love and profound fear that if you don't say something, it could go very, very poorly for that individual. And Paul's making sure we have both. He has both profound love and profound courage to address the problems that are in the church. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. Really? Doesn't that come a little bit out of place for you? You mean, Paul, you mean the church that rebuked you. You mean, Paul, the church that rejected you. Paul, you mean the heated confrontation you had that was so intense that you had to retreat and write them a letter. You have great pride in them. Not only that, I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Isn't that fascinating? That is amazing to me. Do you know what I would do if I wrote that? I'd be like, I'm kind of skeptical of you guys. I'm not sure you're going to obey. We had that bad confrontation back there, and I'm not sure if you're going to walk in faithfulness or not. And where Paul has every right to be critical of this church, he hypes them and gives thanksgiving for them because of how they respond about what you're going to see in this passage. Paul says, I have great pride in you. Now, it's not just that he's telling the church that. It's one thing to tell the church that. It's a whole nother thing to tell somebody else that. Now, so is Paul naive? Does he not understand the people that he's dealing with? So Paul's emotions, as we begin this passage, are up, aren't they? Pride, comfort, joy, encouragement. So here's what happens in the story. Paul has this confrontation, this altercation with this church, with this false apostle, false teacher that's in the church, and he retreats, and he goes to a place called Troas, and what he does is he writes a letter called the Severe Letter, which we don't have, and this severe letter that he refers to back earlier in this book confronts the problems in the church, confronts the false teacher in the church, and what he does is he writes that letter, he signs it, stamps it, hands it to Titus. And he tells Titus what we're going to see at the end of this passage. He says, Titus, take this letter and go to the Corinthian church and tell them, give them this information, this rebuke letter, this intense letter that is going to rebuke them for how they've been thinking and acting and following the wrong guy. And then come on and meet me at Troas. Titus doesn't meet him at Troas. Paul has to go to Macedonia. He has no rest in his spirit earlier in this passage. So he goes now to Macedonia. And at Macedonia, he meets up with Titus. So what we get at the end of this passage is the conversation that Paul has with Titus as he hands him the letter. So go down in this passage to verse 13. Verse 13 
starts like this, therefore we're comforted. Now all of the point of this morning is going to happen between verse 5 and verse 12. We'll get to that in a minute. But here's the conversation that Paul had with Titus. Therefore, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Well, why was Titus so joyful? Because, in his, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Well, what does that mean? It means Titus had a great experience at the Corinthian church. Titus brought a severe letter. A letter that you'd be going, I'm not sure how they're going to take this. And Titus was refreshed. Verse 14, for whatever boasts I made to him about you. Look at that. Don't miss that. Whatever boasts I made to him about you. Here's Paul with this severe letter that's going to rebuke the church. And he goes, Titus, wait till you see how they respond. Wait till you see how the Spirit of God is at work in these people. Wait till you see, Titus, I cannot wait to see how this church is going to be obedient. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as everything we said to you was true, we wrote you as straight shooters, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. Now, you'll know from earlier in our passage, earlier in this book and in our series, that this church obeyed, didn't they? They took the severe letter. They said, we've got to kick the guy out. In fact, we're going to kick him out so hard, we're not going to let him back in the church. And Paul had to say, whoa, lest he's, you know, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, turn and comfort him. So this church did it. They responded well. Titus was refreshed. They took seriously Paul's rebuke. They took seriously the severe letter. Verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. Let me tell you, Paul, how this went. You thought this severe letter was going to be intense. I know you talked up the church. It was amazing. This church turned. They listened to what you said. They rebuked the offender. They even kicked him out of the church. It's a little intense, Paul. This guy still can't get back in the doors of the church. But they did it. Hallelujah, Paul. They responded. His affection to you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. Now, if you had a letter from one of Paul's disciples and he showed up in the church, wouldn't you be a little, how's this going to go? What does Paul have to say to us? And Titus said, from the jump, they responded with fear and trembling. They were concerned about what Paul had to say. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So here's our question. What did the church do that gave Paul and gave Titus such a response of elation and joy and affection and refreshment? What did they do? How did they respond and for that, we're going to come back up now to verse 5 and spend the remainder of our time looking at Paul's explanation of how this church responded when they were confronted. So let me ask you, before we start, and this is all good, Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, how do you respond when you're confronted? Are you like, oh, yes, tell me more. That's it? That's all you've got? 
Is there explain, explanations? Well, you don't understand, it's allergies. Allergies are real bad this time of year. The main problem in my life is my allergies to weed pollen, very high. You don't understand, I'm allowed to sin when the weed pollen's high. Is there justification? Of course I'm allowed to respond that way. Don't you see what they did? Is there outright denial? You don't understand, it wasn't like that. So the question for us that we need to wrestle with here is how do we respond when we're confronted with the word of God? And this church responded in such a way that causes Paul and Titus to rejoice and to be spiritually refreshed by this encounter where the severe letter hit the heart of this church. Now, look at verse 5. Y'all there? Verse 5, you with me? Verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. Now, if you've got cross-references all through this this passage, we're going all the way back to chapter 1. I'm not going to turn back there. You can look at that on your own. But you can look at how Paul talks about the afflictions that caused him to despair of life itself. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, persecution on the outside, and fear within. How in the world is this church going to take this severe letter? How are they going to respond to rebuke? They are in the midst of making decisions that will determine their spiritual destiny. And I am concerned. Remember what he said back in chapter 2. Let me read you what he said in in 2 verse 13. You may have a cross-reference that gives you 2.13. It says, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Paul was wearing the emotional weight of a church that was facing the threat of false teaching. He feels that. He's invested in these people. You know that when you talk to people about the gospel. When you have friends or family members who are wrestling with the truth of who Jesus is, you feel the spiritual weight of those conversations. So did Paul. Verse 6, but God. Now, the The emphasis on God here binds together chapter 1 and chapter 7 because all through chapter 1, Paul talks about God who comforts the afflicted, doesn't he? Now here we have the same theme again showing up in chapter 7, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your, here's part of their response. Here's where you begin to see the heart of the Corinthian church. As he told us of your longing. Our relationship is not right with Paul. And there's a longing for us to be reconciled with Paul. Your mourning. Why would they be sad if not they're rebuked by Paul's words? about the danger that they are in. Your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. If you'll notice, Paul is profoundly comforted by two things in this passage. One, it's the faithfulness of his disciple. 
It's the ethics and the morals and the convictions and the theology of Titus that holds true as Titus goes into a church where he's not sure they're going to respond to the word of God. And number two, Paul is greatly encouraged by the spiritual state of the Corinthian church. So if you tie that back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about a God who gives comfort, what you see is the way that God gives comfort very often is not through alleviation of circumstances, but it's preservation and people. God will bring people into your life to remind you of why you're here and what you're doing and what, this, what the threat of suffering could do in you, that, that where you need to be steadfast and sure and reminded of the gospel message, God will bring people next to you to remind you of the truth that you believe, of the goodness of Christ, of the faithfulness of uh, God and who he is, how Christ loves you and died for you. How does that happen if not through the community of faith who stands shoulder to shoulder with you to remind you of the things that you believe? Number two, whatever number we're on, I don't know, that was two, let's do three. How can you do that for somebody else? How could you come along somebody who's doubting and struggling and facing conflict in their spiritual life where you could go, I believe in you, God is faithful, and I'm with you in it. It's profoundly encouraging to Paul. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Is confrontation easy for the apostle Paul? Isn't he just freed up because he knows Jesus? Let me write this severe letter and get it out in the mail. That's done. Let me move on to the next thing. No, Paul, Paul doesn't willingly grieve people. He doesn't write to them purely for pain's sake. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Implied is, I don't regret it now. Well, why? Look, he looks back. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Confrontation is difficult. Confrontation exposes things. Confrontation may very well cause grief. But the Greek says only, literally, only for an hour. There was a time where this church was out of step with the will and truth of the apostle. And it caused them grief. It caused them spiritual, emotional difficulty, which tells me that spiritual, emotional grief over spiritual confrontation is a natural expression. If we are never grieved in our spiritual life, I question whether or not you have met the true God. If we never have emotional disturbance in our spiritual lives over the fact that we are not the people we ought to be, I wonder if you're reading God's word. Because God has something today 
August 7, 2022, God has an opinion on your life. Do you believe that? God has truth for you to listen, believe, and obey. And it is profoundly dangerous for us to gather as a church and affirm our own implicit biases and ideologies and theologies without being confronted with the word of God. So Paul says, you grieved. I'm not excited to make you grieve. I'm not excited to make you sad. I did regret it. I wrote that letter with pain and anguish in my heart over your spiritual situation. But the grief was a good grief. Look at what he says. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice. You're grieved, I'm rejoicing. Well, why, Paul? Not because you were grieved, not just because I made you sad, but because you were grieved into what? Repenting. So an emotional experience where I am disturbed is a natural result of being confronted with God's word. It's a normative result of being confronted with God's word, which means this is a normative experience in the Christian life. This is a normative experience when people preach the word of God clearly and accurately to you. It may not be every time, but it ought to be some of the time where you are grieved over the fact that there are truths in God's word that you are not believing, walking in, and adhering to. And Paul says, I grieved you. I'm not excited that you're grieved. What I'm more excited about is that your grief led somewhere. Your grief did something. Your grief resulted in something. You weren't just sad arbitrarily, but it stoked the fires of your heart into repentance. For you felt, what kind of grief? See, the question with grief, when we're confronted with the word of God, is why are we sad? Why is it that I would be sad if I'm confronted by God's word? Well, Paul is going to give you two kinds of grief. Two ways of being emotionally disturbed that will result in something. And he's going to mention godly grief first. And he's going to mention it three times. Look at what he says. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. That suffered no loss is used over in 1 Corinthians 3 about those who build on the foundation of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. Worthless things. Things that don't matter for eternity. It says that that individual will be saved uh, as through fire after suffering loss. So Paul's letter of confrontation results in the church being grieved and then responding by repenting. And then the result is that they don't suffer loss. Which means godly grief, to begin with, is preservative. Godly grief means you don't lose in the end. So that's important to know. Amen? Amen. That right repentance is actually a preservative in my spiritual life. It keeps something. Verse 10, he explains, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So not only do I not lose, I preserve what I have, and it puts me on the path somewhere. Where does it ultimately lead? It ultimately leads to salvation without what? Say it. Who who would like less regret in their life? Yeah, right? Ten of you. The rest of you are like, I'm good with all the regret. I'd like more, please. 
you're telling me that not only does godly repentance preserve something so that I don't lose it, it sets me on the right path, and it's a path that continues in my life that is characterized by no regret. Can you imagine having the certainty? You ever get lost driving, and you go, maybe you don't. I, this happens to me. It doesn't ever happen to Suzanne. You can ask her about it. It happens to me. Where uh, I will get lost. That's the point of the story. <laughs> Imagine having the certainty that every step in your life, every direction you take, every decision at the crossroads of being confronted with God's word, you would always and consistently choose a path that led to no regret. That is stunning. That spiritual reality is amazing to think about. You're telling me that God can put me on a path where my life is not filled with I ought to have done. That my, when I play back my life, I don't consistently come back to I should have. That's where godly grief, that's where repentance leads. Whereas worldly grief, now if you're to fill in the definition of worldly grief and contrast it to godly grief, let me help you with this, right? Worldly grief, all he gives you with worldly grief in this passage, he, he has an uh, economy of words. He essentially just gives you worldly grief produces what? Death. That's it. But you've got to take the sentence and open it up a little bit and compare it with godly grief. Now, godly grief produces what? Repentance that leads to salvation that has no regret. Worldly grief leads to no repentance, right? Leads to loss and death and a life filled with regret. So it's really important how we think about how we're repenting, right? Who would like the life that leads to salvation and a life without regret? Then I'd like to know how, I'd, how I should be repenting, right? Amen? Let's repent well. Let's repent right. I'd like a life that leads to salvation and eternal life. That's what I'd like. If I repent wrongly, I'm certain of loss, grief, death. Now let's look at godly. This is all he gives you in the passage about worldly grief. I'll illustrate it in a minute. Let's look at godly grief. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Now in context, the earnestness is returning to the relationship with the apostle. And not only the apostle, but the apostle who has the message of reconciliation. And not only the message of reconciliation, but the message of relationship with God. That's what I want, Paul Paul, God, Paul, I want to be back in right relationship with you. You are the only one who has the message that secures my relationship of reconciliation with God. I want that, that earnestness in me. But also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, to vindicate yourselves. Here's what the church is doing. We hear the rebuke from Paul the apostle. We're desirous to know what he thinks and how he feels about us. Not only that, we're desirous now to walk in the direction Paul has given to us. You need to do something about the guy in your midst. We have an eagerness 
to clear ourselves. Not only that, we have, we have indignation. Why would there be indignation? You ever do something and you go, gosh, I'm an idiot. No? When I do that, I get mad. I can't believe I have done that. I can't believe that I made that choice. I can't believe that I'm walking out of step with the things that I know to be true. There ought to be a little bit in you, Christians, where you are not happy about the sin in your life. Amen? You don't like it. It's ugly. It's dark. It's no fun. It doesn't lead me to good places. There ought to be a little bit of, I'm frustrated. What fear? Why would they be fearful? What are the consequences of the decisions that I'm making in my life? Is there a future for me where I lose salvation, where I lose the hope and the intimacy with God? What are the consequences of a decision where I reject the apostolic word and I go into false teaching? What longing? Oh, God, make it different. What zeal? Gosh, Paul, tell us what we need to do. What punishment? And they did that, didn't they? They kicked the guy out. Way to go. They, they expressed godly, principled, diligent obedience. They didn't just feel sad and go, well, we're not going to do marriage just because sad. Let's just be sad. Is the guy still in the church? Yeah, he's still in the church. We don't really need to do anything that bad. We don't really need to discipline. We don't need to follow through. We don't need to take the spiritual purity of the gospel message that characterizes our church that serious. Let's leave him in the church. No, they take active steps toward reforming their life according to apostolic direction. They obey what they know to be true. They're not just sad about their lack of conformity. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter, which doesn't mean they were innocent to begin with. It means when they were showed their sin, they responded the way they were supposed to. And that is all we can ask of one another, isn't it? Nobody's perfect. Anybody perfect? Put your hands down. Don't embarrass us as a church. So this tells you the heart of a church. If this is, let me say, make, make another point. If you go to a church that never talks about sin, that never talks about the holiness of God, that never says anything about who God is and his righteous, white, hot purity and holiness, that never calls out sin, what you will do is create the beautiful soil for hypocrisy to grow. That's all you'll do. Because we'll all gather together and we'll all affirm one another's cultural idolatries that we love so much. And our relationship with God will purely be intellectual, but it won't be reformative. Year after year after year, we won't change. But if you preach the truth of God, the reconciliation available in Jesus Christ, it draws people They long to know how they can be made right with God and how God can change them and redeem them and reconcile them, forgive their sins. That's why the church ought to be full of people who are repenting often. I am not perfect. I have fallen short of the glory of God. But there stands my Redeemer. He is the one we follow. He is the one who's pure. He is the one who gives forgiveness. 
And we need Jesus, we need your word to change us and to shape us and to reform us and to restore us and to break down the idols in our heart. At every point, they proved themselves innocent in the matter. Now, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good repentance. Let me show you real quick. I want to show you. You could do this in a couple places in the scriptures. You could look at the life of Esau, which shows you a life of no repentance, really worldly repentance. I think the best one is in the book of Revelation. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians and turn back to Revelation, the last book in your Bible, all the way on the right. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 is the fall of the centralized city of the final satanically empowered world empire. We looked at this back in, I don't know, 89 maybe. It was a while ago. We were in Revelation. Um, And in Revelation chapter 18, the city falls because of the judgment of God. And there are people that stand on the outside of the city who are watching the destruction of the city that was the central religious and economic and political world empire called Babylon. It was the final world power before God's wrath came down and destroyed the city. And there are people who profited from what was going on in that city. And what I want to show you in this passage is the emotional response they have to this city being destroyed. Look at Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Are they emotional? They are. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. Are they sad? Yeah, they're sad too. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. Well, that's interesting. We just had God of heaven and earth destroy the central economic, political, and religious world power of the day. And they're sad that their business isn't thriving. Their cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, articles of ivory, kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice. (gasps) You get it. Wine, oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. We were into slave trafficking as well. And we're really, really sad that we can't make money anymore. Are we sad that our line of work dishonors God, the maker of heaven and earth. No, but we're sad that we've lost money on the deal. We're sad that he's judged this, this uh, city. The fruit for which your soul, verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men say, you get the point, right? Go back to 2 Corinthians. Why are they so sad? Because the thing that was so precious to them, the thing that gave their life value, the thing that they found their security, their comfort, their hope, and their purpose in was taken away. But what they aren't sad about is where they stand with God. 
See, this is the danger of being confronted with the word of God. So listen, our spiritual, emotional, and physical lives are all intertwined like this. And, for, and there might be no greater indication of what is happening in your spiritual life than what your emotions say. Because when our emotions speak in our mind and in our heart, you trace that line of thinking and reasoning and feeling back to the central things in your life that give your life purpose, meaning, comfort, and security. And when you are disturbed by the word of God, often there is an opportunity where the word of God disturbs you, you don't like it, but you don't repent. Anybody ever been there, Christians? We all been there. We've all felt that. We've all felt the plumb line of God's word. Remember what Hebrews says about God's word? The word of God is living and active. Uh, something, real good. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Judging to the, I should have had it. Uh, the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Is that where God's word hits you? Or does it stay up here? Do good things. Love one another. Now, unless you think that, I, I, that this doesn't happen to me, you could talk to any Christian who's been walking with God for a long time. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, there was a this has happened to me recently. Anytime I've ever heard God speak in my life, I've never heard an audible voice, I've never had some moment, none of that has ever happened to me. But consistently, all throughout the course of my life, I've been walking with Christ for probably 25 years, 30 years. Consistently, in my relationship with God, God always speaks through the word. Always, 100% of the time, there is always a word, there's always a passage, there's always something with chapter and verse where God gets my attention. And this happened to me probably... I don't know, six weeks ago, I was in, I was in a funk, a spiritual funk, where uh, I have a tendency to believe that my spiritual life runs on my terms, not on God's terms. It's one of my just besetting sins. So that when I look at life in general, I feel like life ought to work on my terms. That's why we did Ecclesiastes, because I needed that idol out of my heart, right? And um, I was grumbling, I wasn't, do, I wasn't, there wasn't any kind of external thing that was going on. It was all internal. It was what was going on in my heart about how my life was going at the time. And I didn't like it. I believed life ought to work on my terms. I didn't like the circumstances. I didn't like lots of stuff. I won't get into all of it other than I didn't like it. I was pouting, essentially. And I was walking around in my, I don't know where I was, somewhere in my yard. Uh, I was walking around in my yard and I, had, I hadn't been uh, reading this passage. It hadn't been a passage that had come to mind in a while. I had read it before, but it was 12 words, and the 12 words came from Job chapter one. Now, if you know how the beginning of Job works, the beginning of Job is a conversation between God and Satan. And God tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Job takes everything. I'm sorry, Satan takes everything from Job. And with 12 words, Job, chapter one, God rebuked me. It was a very simple rebuke, but I knew it was God, and I knew that God was getting my attention because of how I was thinking about my life. Job, chapter one, verse 22. 
In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You ever been in a spot where you feel like God is not running the universe on your terms? And I knew it. I knew it at that moment. I needed to repent. I needed to bring my perspective in line with God's perspective. As Job was, was I experiencing the loss of children, the loss of money, the loss of wealth, the loss of fields, the loss of camels, the loss of, was I raided by people? No. But I didn't like the way God was running the universe. I'll give you another one. There was another time uh, just this year where I was considering, um, like I said, besetting, Steve has besetting sins that I can't really get away from that's annoying. I wish I'd get rid of them. But a lot of it uh, comes back to essentially pride. That I can see pride. The older I get in the Lord, the more I see pride more clearly. And I had uh, Romans chapter 9. God spoke this word to me. Romans chapter 9 verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then it depends not on human will what you decide, or literally the Greek reads on him who runs, which means no matter what you want or how hard you work for it, it don't depend on those things. It depends on God who has mercy. You ever feel like you're reading the Bible and you get body blows from God? You're just trying to cover up and not catch him in the mouth. That's what it's like for you to have a real relationship with God. That's what it's really like. I want it to be all like floating two inches above the ground, understanding, discernment, wisdom, success, victory. It's not like that. And you may be profoundly disappointed in your relationship with God because God keeps rebuking you and revealing to you that you are not who you think you are. Is there anything in you when you hear a sermon or read the word of God where you get confronted and the posture of your heart is Psalm 139, God search me and know me. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Are you spiritually sensitive? Do you repent quick? Because if you do, you know, I said last week, I'll close with this, have the band come. We tell ourselves these stories all the time. I tell myself these stories all the time that are, they're a good news story. How if I'm disciplined and I'm focused and I'm diligent and I deny myself and I will make sure that my life runs on my terms and I will find success and meaning and purpose and victory. And we all have a tendency to tell ourselves stories. I'll be a good wife if I fill in the blank. I'll be a good husband if I. I'll be a good provider if I. I'll be a great employee if I. If I have success in my career, I'll be a good Christian. If I do X, Y, and Z, therefore it will result in blessing. And there's nothing like sitting under and beneath the, worth, the word of God to be repented, not of these sins out here, but of the deepest convictions in your heart. Because when that happens and you're confronted by the word of God, what is happening, let me tell you this, what is happening is that you are being invited by the God of the universe into a relationship where you would suffer no loss, to where you would suffer no regret, 
to where you could be cleansed by your sins and the deep convictions of your life that you love, that you don't want to give up, that you know ultimately will end in spiritual death. And what you're being invited into is an invitation into repentance, to trade death for life, to trade a life full of regret into a life of freedom and joy and forgiveness and reconciliation. Why does Paul care so much about this? Why is his life filled with joy when the church responds that way? Because he knows the gospel. He knows what's available to them. He knows that they can have true and right standing and reconciliation in their relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. So if you've never done that, if you've never said, me and God are not on good terms, if you've never recognized that you are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, then we would encourage you to finish that verse that says, we are justified freely by his grace. That you can have a relationship with God. That you can repent today. You can find freedom. You can find forgiveness. You can walk in a life of joy knowing that your spiritual life is preserved. That your spiritual life is certain. That you and God can be made right. And that that repentance will lead to salvation. And that's the hope of our church. That's the hope of every Christian in this room. So if that's you... I want you to pray with me. Something simple. God, I'm a sinner. I haven't done what you've required of me, and God, I see that. God, would you forgive me? Would you change me? And God, I trust that what Jesus did in the cross is sufficient to pay for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And because of your word, we can receive certainty that our sins are forgiven. Not because we've gotten our lives together or because you love me, but really because you love us enough to send your son. So Father, I pray for the gift of repentance for someone here this morning. That you would give their spiritual life new breath. And Father, for us as a church, that we would always remember and always be repenting that you would give us such a spirit of humility that we desire your word to speak to us, that we desire for you to seek out the idolatries of our heart and that we would turn and find life that is available in Jesus' name. Father, make us that kind of church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.